0: Lights were freed out of bondage and they forgot how to sing. The slaves forgot how to sing. So they looked up and they saw the birds chirping, and the birds taught them once again how to sing. So this is called the Nigun of the Birds. Na Got the first part. Na 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 and na 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 Oh, we should, um, we should feel the love around us, to feel the love around us, not just from people, not just from, uh, from the earth, but from the animals around us. When we see birds, we should think of them blowing kisses to us. Think of those birds whispering secrets to us, that the secrets, um, that the, secrets the mysteries, that, the, that, that love is flowing in all directions and we can choose to see that or not see that. Anyways, that's the nigun of the Birds and I, and, and I love that one. And it's impossible to not be in a good mood when you sing it. So if you're ever down, try the nigun of the birds. (laughs) Okay, friends, let's start with a poll. Let's start with a little poll here. Good to see you. Thanks for joining, Scott and Michael. Oh, and Jenny. Okay, how important is your Jewish denomination to you? Number one, it is very central to my Jewish identity. Number two, it is helpful... It is helpful, but not central. Number three, I don't think much about denominations at all, really. Number four, I am post-denominational. And number five, I think denominationalism is mostly divisive, unhelpful, and it looks like we lost the last word there. (laughs) And uh, let's see. Denominationalism is mostly divisive, unhelpful, and let's say out of date. Okay, so. uh, okay. So cast your vote there on how you view your Jewish denomination. Okay. Let's give you a few more seconds here to cast your vote. Okay. A few more seconds. Welcome David. Welcome Vicki. Hi Cheryl. Okay. Pam, do we have enough results there? Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. 8% say that their Jewish denomination is very central to their Jewish identity. 42% think it is helpful, but not central. 42% again. Wow. We've got like, this is like the new Pew study. Like who needs the Pew study? We got these results. 42%. I don't think much about denominations. Don't think much about it. 8%. I am post-denominational and zero are opposed to denominations. OK, very interesting. Very, very interesting. So thank you for that. I, I, yeah, I'm joking about the Pew study, because the results are supposed to come out like tomorrow or something, the new Pew study, um, along with Facebook's decision as to whether to invite former President Trump back onto Facebook or not. So those are the two big decisions tomorrow. Uh, I'm sure there's other ones. But uh, anyways, so friends, just by way of introduction before we launch in here. You know, some of our 40 greatest debates are very abstract, and nobody will take personal offense at whether God has a body or not. Oh my goodness, I'm so offended. You told me God doesn't have a body, you've destroyed my theology. I don't expect to get major pushback. And some of our debates are kind of personal. We're going to get into egalitarianism in a few sessions from now, right? Last week you talked about guns. Maybe some maybe some gun owners or some gun bailers are, you know, upset with me in, in some in some way. And today, too, might feel like it's a little bit on the personal side. And so I want to just frame this session by saying that um, I am not offering any praise or critiques for anyone's personal model of Judaism today. I am just looking to touch upon general trends in recent history for Jews, recent means, past few hundred years, (laughs) right? Because we think in, think in, in terms of millennia, um, and so you might find yourself saying, hi, I, I'm Orthodox, and I don't believe in what you just said is Orthodox, or hey, I'm Reform, and I don't believe in what you just said was Reform Judaism. My goal is not to describe every nuance of personal identity, but to show trends over the last 200 years, and, um, and to show how one of the 40 greatest debates in Jewish history emerges in Enlightenment around um, Reform Judaism versus Orthodox Judaism. Okay. Now, um, some 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 sessions I put on philosopher hat. Some sessions I put on theologian hat. Some sessions I put on activist hat. I got a lot of hats I try to wear. But this session I'm putting on historian hat. This is this is my this is my uh, my historian hat. Okay. So here we go, friends. Here we go. And um, uh, some sessions I like to I like to speak in my in my in the in the moment voice. But something like this, since I'm naturally not a historian, I like to uh, be very documented in what I say. So here we go. Friends, today, the many different versions, genres, and flavors of Jewish thought and Jewish practice, which we often call denominations, even though that word is far from encapsulating the uniqueness of, of, uh, of one from the other, they blend into each other to such an extent that they exist more as a set of blurred lines on a continuum than as distant and distinct points making up some sort of polarity. In the late 18th century, though, as the modern age was beginning, two particular ways of expressing one's Judaism developed that could indeed be viewed as distinct denominations and that could be imagined as polar opposites in both Creed and Deed, the Reform and Orthodox movements. And I love these two pictures because they are the stereotypes of how you would consider uh, these denominations. These, these Hasidim, these Hasidim over there debating, oh, is marijuana kosher, right? Or, or is, uh, is my toothpaste kosher? And these um, reformed women rabbis, you know, dancing in a circle at the Torah in front in a, in, a, in a room of women. Of course, the two denominations are far greater than those two pictures, but that kind of represents the stereotypical um, uh, movements. So friends, of course, there are other Jewish denominations worth talking about, but these two are the earliest and had the most tension in their emergence, viewed as polar opposites, and so we're going to begin there. Of course, the main founders of conservative Judaism were Zachariah Frankel, living from 1801 to 1875, who founded the Jewish Theological Seminary in Breslau in 1854, and Solomon Schechter in 1849 to 1915 in the U.S., although the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism was not founded until 1913. Interesting enough, Frankel broke from the reform movement when it came to praying in German versus Hebrew, an issue that the conservative movement continues to grapple with today in many regards. The Restructionist Rabbinical College was founded not until 1967. Renewal doesn't emerge until the late 1960s and early 1970s. And a reminder that Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi didn't want the renewal movement to be viewed as a denomination, but as a flavor that could be tasted within every denomination. There should be reform renewal, conservative renewal, orthodox renewal, post-denominational renewal. He didn't want it to be a new denomination. Reform and orthodox Judaism start much earlier than all of that. The first reformed temple opened in Germany in July 17, 1810, 1810, dating the founding of Orthodox Judaism as a matter of debate based on when that denominational label was used versus when the style of Judaism was organized, which is obviously much earlier. Originating in the 1800s in Germany during the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, reformed Judaism has emerged as a liberal response both to some Jews who were rapidly leaving Judaism, even converting to Christianity, and to others who seemed stuck in a past that would not even recognize the present world which they inhabited. They wanted to imply scientific study to Judaism, what they called Wissenschaft. A big part of the enterprise was not about rethinking religion as much as gaining social acceptance with a respect for Judaism. For example, Jerusalem was taken out of the prayer books to demonstrate that Germany was the true home for German Jews. Don't think we have a, a dual allegiance, a dual loyalty. We're removing Jerusalem from the liturgy to show we're real Germans. Their main goal, scholars suggest, is that the goal was not to rethink Judaism as much as to make clear that we are real Germans, and yes, we happen to be Jews. They created much shorter prayer services. They took off their kippot in the synagogue and out. And they gave sermons in German rather rather than in Yiddish. They got rid of anything that might lead an outsider to claim that Judaism was strange, like keeping kosher. Ugh, I don't want to be a backwards Jew who would buy kosher meat. I'm a real German. I will eat with the rest of the Germans, right? It all needs to be about morality, not about ritual or the supernatural. Rabbi Abraham Geiger, one of Reform's pioneers, suggested that his contemporaries should readily change Jewish observance to adapt to the modern ethos. He argued that this was historically consistent with the Jewish past and that observance always changed to meet the needs of the moment. In regard to one issue that has always become a focal point with reference to which many modern Jewish groups have defined themselves, gender Already in 1837, Rabbi Geiger argued as follows, even though, we must acknowledge, he of course completely failed to actualize this point in any complete fashion. He says, let there be from now on no distinction between duties for men and women, no assumption of the spiritual inferiority of women, as though she were incapable of grasping the deep things in religion, no institution of the public service, either in form or content which shuts the doors of the temple in the face of women. Now, of course, this, um, again, is the early to mid-1800s. The first woman, the first woman reformed rabbi in America, Rabbi Sally Presand, is still not ordained until June 3rd, 1972. So it might feel like egalitarianism is is, uh, part and parcel, is consecutive of the birth of reform Judaism, but it's not true. Geiger writes something like that in the early to mid-1800s. But it's going to take more than 100 years later to even have a reformed woman rabbi, right? So, so you can't equate reformed Judaism with egalitarianism. Today it's equated, but you have over 100, well over 100 years, 150 years, where egalitarianism is, is completely foreign. It's just a thought. It's just an idea. It's not until the American feminist revolution that the reform movement will really bring in such an idea. And, and of course, the first uh, American Orthodox female rabbi was was ordained um, less than than, uh, 40 years later. The original egalitarian ethos was, in that sense, limited. And as such, Rabbi Geiger's statement has somewhat limited value as a reference point. Nonetheless, his articulation and assertion of his position set reform decidedly apart from traditional Judaism. As a concomitant radical departure in the theological sphere, reformed Jewish thinkers generally argued that the Torah is not from God, but rather was written by people, by men, that Jewish law is not binding, and that Jews must move away from and maybe even denounce all historical practices that are outdated, alienating, offensive, seemingly superstitious, or seeming, or just unhelpful. For the bulk of reformed thinkers, God eventually became not an all-powerful being that we could have a relationship with. Rather, God was thought of as part of the human spirit not necessarily separate from it. Reform Judaism also came to reject the Messianic idea. The shift in, think- in thinking showed up liturgically, so that, for example, in regard to resurrection, the reference in prayer to God as Mechaye Metim, the one who brings the dead to life, was changed to refer to the Hakol, right, the one who enlivens everything. Similarly, early reform was also anti-Zionist arguing that finding religious meaning in the diaspora was the priority and would allow Jews to focus on being, quote unquote, a light unto the nations. They would reject the idea that there should be a return to the homeland and that, um, that, that there should be conflict involved in that and reject the idea that the diaspora is not the center. But friends, by the second half of the 19th century, the majority of Jews in Germany identified with liberal Judaism, right? How quickly that happens. And this new model was what would be exported to America through the building of liberal Jewish America as we, as we know it. And so, and so a big part of American, liberal American Judaism as we know it today is not only due to an assimilation into the Protestant worldview but also um, the influence of the early reformers in Germany. One of the early leaders of the reform movement, Rabbi Isaac Mayerweis, was very influential in developing reform Judaism in America in the middle and late 19th century. He wrote the first Siddur, the first prayer book, edited for American Jews in 1857. He founded the Union of American Hebrew Congregations in 1873. He founded the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati in 1875. He founded the CCAR, the Central Conference of American Rabbis, in 1889. This guy built it all. He built it all the institutions. The approach to halakha, taken by Rabbi Wise, was exemplified by his involvement in an event that came to be known as the Trefa Banquet. The dinner held in 1883 to honor the first graduates of Hebrew Union College as well as delegates to a convention of the UAHC, was a lavish affair, which the guests dined on shellfish and had a dessert of ice cream after their meat meal. While Rabbi Wise does not seem to have been responsible for the meal itself, he pushed back hard against Jewish leaders who criticized the non-kosher party and published an editorial in his newspaper, The American Israelites, taking those critics to task for being exercised over the laws of Kashrut, something considered by the newspaper to be relatively unimportant. The Pittsburgh Platform, a document adopted in 1885 by a group of Reform rabbis, emphasized even further the degree to which Reform Judaism eschewed any focus on ritual in Judaism, and strongly favored treating Judaism as a religion primarily of morality and not so much of ritual. It looked at that time like Reform Judaism was going to be the dominant form of Judaism in America. In 1880, over 90% of synagogues in America were reformed. And so at that time, you might have thought there was going to be no future for any other type of denomination in America. Reform Judaism had capitalized and monopolized on the future of the American Jewish outlook and ethos. A few decades later, 1930s, reform Judaism returned to a more traditional approach seeking to differentiate itself from its perceived similarity to American Christianity. Reform Judaism also later embraced Zionism. Okay, so just to hash that out, like many movements, the earliest form of reform is much more radical, much more uh, 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 differentiating from traditional Judaism intentionally, and even embracing conflict, and seeking complete acceptance within a Christian worldview. Come, come, come America! Come, come, early 20th century in America, there comes to be a slide of differentiation for various reasons. But over the years, Reform retained a non-traditional perspective on halakha. One of the most prominent 20th century theologians of the Reform movement, Rabbi Doctor Eugene Borowitz, he argued the halakha for the modern Jew was a resource but not binding law right? That's a reminder of the Re- Reconstructionist idea that says it is a vote, but not a veto. He he writes here in this important book, The Autonomous Jewish Self, I do not see how, even in principle, Jewish law can be imposed on such a Jewish self. Rather, with autonomy essential to selfhood, I avidly espouse a pluralism of thought and action stemming from Jewish commitment. So it's very interesting. Borowitz is a is a is a reform Jew. By the way, delete delete from your from your vocabulary. Um, uh, uh, a uh, reformer. What, what's the way people miscall the reform Jews? I hear it every day. Reform, reformer, reforming. Um, what's what's the word people use mistakenly?
1: Reformed.
2: Like,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah, reformed, reformed. People say. Oh, yeah, I'm a part of Reformed Judaism. So there's nothing called Reformed Judaism. It's Reformed Judaism. And I don't you know, seek to you know, correct. And by the way, the Reconstructionist movement renamed itself in the last few years Reconstructing Judaism. So there's a lot of shifts here. And in any case, Borowitz is a part of a traditional enterprise within the Reform movement, and that he is seeking to root the movement back in engagement with, with traditional thought, but is also being clear that he will not break from the modern idea that we don't obey God, we obey reason, right? And um, there's a lot to unpack there, but but the uh, ultimately to be a modern person means you are a person of reason, not a person of revelation. You don't seek to obey a word of God, you seek to obey your conscience or your ration, the, the, the best rationale you can come up with. There's no ideal of submission, And so Reformed Judaism wants to to breach this idea that Jewish tradition is completely compatible with with reason as we see it. And Anywhere it's not, it should be changed. Of course, this is not an invention of Reformed Judaism. Maimonides has such an idea. Sadia go and said, if you see a conflict between revelation and reason, you're misinterpreting one of them. You have to go back to reason and rethink your reason. And if that didn't work, go back to Revelation, reinterpret Revelation. So the rationalists in the medieval times very much had this idea, but the reform movement takes it to a new new level here. So here Borowitz is not only speaking of the idea that the halakha is not of divine origin, but also that religious law itself could never be binding for a modern person who understands autonomy to be of principal importance. Notwithstanding the views of leaders such as Wise and Borowitz, Reform Judaism has hardly lacked religious imperatives. Thus, while reform has prioritized the ethical over the ritual, reform thinking grounded ethics in religious doctrine. So although some non-reformed rabbis were involved in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, Jewish participation in that movement came mostly from the ranks of reform rabbis and reform Jews. Protesting injustice was not a secular political act as much as a Jewish act. For Reformed Judaism, egalitarianism is taken for granted in our era, since equality is viewed as a fundamental principle. Similarly, intermarriage is widely embraced today by Reformed Judaism, since there should be no barriers to love. And the Reform movement defines its faith in terms of, quote unquote, the covenant between God and Israel as expressed over the generations in the teachings of an ever-evolving Torah and tradition. That comes directly from the URJ's website. So these are dear friends of mine. Uh, I I, I even smile when I see them because I love these three people who who could be viewed as, on on the staff level at least, not on the lay level, as the leaders of Reform Judaism today. Uh, Rabbi Jonah Pesner here, the head of the RAC, the Social Action Branch. Rabbi Rick Jacobs, the head of the um, of the URJ, um, which is the umbrella, and Rabbi Hara Person, um, who is um, the, the president of the CCAR, the rabbinic body. Um, I don't remember if she is the first woman or the first lesbian, but she certainly made history when she became the president a year ago. Oh, no, she's not, she's not a lesbian. Excuse me. So she's the first woman. Um, I, I don't know how she identifies. So excuse me. Just erase that. Erase that part. Um, but she, but all three of these folks are are, are wonderful people. Um, and great leaders and thinkers. And actually, Rabbi Rick Jacobs and Rabbi Person will be speaking at VBM again um, this summer, so you can learn from them. We're thrilled to have them back. Rabbi Jonah Pesner has been with VBM many times. And in any case, these are three of the the many faces you'll see representing Reformed Judaism today, but the three most prominent. Over the course of time, reform suffered losses in its numbers due to assimilation out of Reform Judaism, just as members of other sectors of Jewish society have become assimilated into the broader American ethos, uh, indeed, the world populace, even as the late 20th and early 21st centuries have seen a strengthening of more traditional brands of Judaism. Nonetheless, more American Jews check the reform box when given the choice to check a denominational box than any other grouping. But reform Judaism today, primarily in an American phenomenon, is the largest Stream of Judaism in America and Canada. However, in Israel, Europe, South America, South Africa, and other places in the world, Reform Judaism is rather small and a lot for lots of reasons. While Reform Judaism tends to appear something somewhat monolithic, by contrast, there is really no one, there is no one Orthodox Judaism. Reform Judaism has one umbrella, umbrella organization, the URJ. Rabbi Rick Jacobs, pictured here, is the head of it. One rabbinic association, the CCAr Rabbi person here is the head of it. One social action agency, the Rock Rabbi Jonah Pesner pictured here is the head of it. And one global organization, the World Union for Progressive Judaism. It is very, very centralized, even though it it, it celebrates diversity. Orthodox Judaism, on the other hand, is completely fractured among various Hasidic groups, different non-Hasidic ultra-Orthodox factions and so-called centrist orthodoxy, modern orthodoxy, and open orthodoxy, not to mention Ashkenazic and Sephardic differentiation, something that you don't see it differentiated in other denominations in the same way. There are countless different orthodox umbrella organizations and rabbinic associations, and there is often enormous division between these camps. While reform is centralized and decisions of ethics committees are binding from within that hierarchy, so to speak. For orthodoxy, different factions reject the authority of others. The leadership of different Hasidic groups, such as Chabad and Satmer, Halachic decisors affiliated with Yeshiva University and Yeshiva at Torah, and even members of wider subgroups, such as Sephardim and Ashkenazi. The general approach of mainstream orthodoxy might be articulated as holding that the Torah is the word of God, that halakha is binding, that sweeping halakhic change is largely antithetical to Jewish authenticity, and that gender differences are not only to be embraced, but largely celebrated. Rabbis in the Orthodox world were originally and traditionally seen as authority figures whom one sought for a ruling. Like early reform, Early orthodoxy, too, was was not Zionistic. Remember this, friends. Early reform and early, early orthodoxy both reject Zionism. For the orthodox, this wasn't about the ethical primacy of the diaspora like it was for the reform, but rather about a need to wait for the Messiah and a rejection of the secular pioneers who were too quick and eager to roll up their sleeves and create a secular state not guided and informed by Torah and Halakha. So these three pictures here were the three most influential rabbis in the second half of the 20th century um, in American orthodoxy, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik of Yeshiva University, modern orthodox, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who many people would say is not orthodox at all, uh, is post-denominational, but certainly for many reasons we can locate within orthodoxy. And Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was the the halachist. And these three were the three pioneers here. By the way, by far the fastest growing denomination, so to speak, today is Chabad. Chabad. Those Jews who um, are largely not um, observant, but like the orthodox, but inclusive approach that a Chabad house offers. You can find a Chabad in every country, in every city, virtually in the world. Orthodox Judaism embraced a strict adherence to the rulings found in traditional rabbinic texts regarding observance of Shabbat, Kashrut, Nida, and other Torah and rabbinic laws. In Orthodoxy, it is not only the Torah, the written law, that is viewed as binding, but also the Talmud, the oral law, which leaves, for the most part, virtually no room for flexibility as well. And in much of Orthodoxy, insularity came to be seen as a value. Because Orthodox Jews at large did not want to be influenced by an outside culture that could lead to even the slightest bit of assimilation. Many ultra-Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn and Muncie still don't speak English, but only Yiddish, with the goal of preventing interaction with the world at large. Many who do speak English only do so when necessary for business or other pressing needs. At the same time, many Orthodox Jews have embraced the culture of the broader world, even as they carefully sift between those elements of general culture that enhance a way of life guided by Torah and those that could undermine it. For Orthodox Jews, serving God with ritual and Torah are particularly central. A visitor to an Orthodox service or event might hear less talk about ethics or more about observance of the law than they would when among other denominations, among most Orthodox Jews who consider the point, likely take it for granted that the law is ethical and that to be an Orthodox Jew means to be an ethical one. Many Orthodox Jews assume a belief in the rebuilding of the temple and the coming of the Messiah, along with the resurrection of the dead, although much disagreement exists even within Orthodox Judaism as to the meaning of the terms Mashiach, Messiah, and resurrection, and what it might mean for the temple to be rebuilt and for the sacrificial service to be restored. For many ultra-Orthodox Jews, the modern state of Israel provides needed benefits and is certainly meaningful, even though some Haredim shun not just the idea of a modern Jewish state, but even choose not to live in Israel for religious reasons. For many religious Zionists, however, the return to the land is the birth of the Messianic era, and the government, although secular, is also a crucial part of the redemption. This vision of Zionism was articulated in early formulations by Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook and developed further by his son, Rav Zvi Yehuda Cook, and his followers, with the belief that the state of Israel in its current formation will ultimately become a totally halakhic state. Still, many Orthodox Jews and leaders feel that the end goal of a purely Halakhic state is not a necessary aspiration, so long as all Jews can call Israel their home, and those who wish to live a Halakhic lifestyle are free to do so. So the term orthodox is often used as a proxy in umbrella fashion to include the various forms of traditional Judaism that existed before the modern era and that made up almost all pre-Enlightenment rabbinic Judaism. The term orthodox isn't actually mentioned, or at least not recorded, however, until it was used in a seventeen ninety 1790, a 1795 Berlin publication called the Berlinisch Monistrift, The term was used to describe those who were in opposition to the Enlightenment. While the reform used orthodox as an insult to show how barbaric the traditionalists were, the people described by this term at that time didn't like the fact that the foreign title emerged from German, Christian-German discourse. They preferred titles such as Torah true, Gesetz true in German. So friends, once again, I want to just reinforce this point. The Orthodox did not call themselves Orthodox, meaning one truth. The reformers called, the reformers labeled them Orthodox as a derogatory term to say those backwards folks, who are barbaric traditionalists, the Orthodox at that time wanted to be called Torah true rather than Torah reformers. At some point, however, after the advent of Orthodox Judaism, an Orthodox subculture that ultimately came to be known as modern Orthodoxy came into existence. One feature of the modern Orthodox approach in its perception of secular knowledge as a positive force to be incorporated into Jewish thought rather than at most something to be studied for utilitarian purposes. Some will ascribe the birth of modern orthodoxy to Moses Mendelssohn in 18th century Germany, although others credit Mendelssohn with the birth of the reform movement, given his prominence in in the Enlightenment itself. The modern orthodox were attracted to Mendelssohn's idea of being a Jew at home and a person in the streets, whereas the reform would be attracted to the articulation that came from Judah Leib Gordon. Others will point to Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, 19th century Germany, who championed the idea of Torah in derech Eretz, Torah alongside the way of the world. He was the founder of what was called neo-Orthodoxy, what today would be called modern, modern Orthodoxy. This camp was not like the other Orthodox camps. He said, you can shave your beard, for example. Also, instead of fighting with Reform Judaism and denouncing them, he said, it's best to just not talk with them. And let us do our thing and them do their thing. right? This would be like a Chabad approach today. Chabad completely rejects reform and will not talk publicly with them, but doesn't want to fight them. It's not very, it's not very attractive to fight them. So they say, I'll never, uh, by Chabad rulings, you, can, you are not allowed to sit on a panel with non-Orthodox, uh, non, non-Chabad rabbis. But they will say, oh, you know, um, we're all Jews. We're all Jews. So I'm not going to publicly denounce anyone, right? So this would be a similar approach. OK, let, let everybody do what they want. There's a general tolerance, not fighting. But, um, but we will not embrace them or even talk with them, OK? So, um, uh, so, so again, so, 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 so this is Hirsch's model. And this camp is not like other Orthodox camps that he's describing here. In regards to the shaving, the other denominations, others will point to the birth of a modern Orthodoxy from Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, 20th century New York, affiliated with Yeshiva University, whose motto is Torah Umadah, which literally means Torah and science. Although in his context, it's intended to imply and refer to to Torah and general knowledge. While Orthodox Jews can be found throughout America, The majority live in the Eastern Tri-State area. The largest Orthodox yeshiva outside of Israel is found in Lakewood, New Jersey. In visiting any major country outside, uh, excuse me, around the world, Orthodox synagogues will be found. Once again, especially Chabad houses. So, uh, Reform Judaism, huge in America. Once you leave America, you go around the world, you're mostly going to find Orthodox. The relationship between the Orthodox camp and the Reform has been manifested in a variety of contexts. In the 19th century, the reform rabbinate pushed back on orthodoxy when its work eroded traditional halakhic practice. But the matter went both ways. Rabbis such as the German educator, Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, organized anti-reform manifestos. So it wasn't like the orthodox were only discrediting reform and the reform were full of love, or the reform were hating on the orthodox and the orthodox were full of love. It went both ways. Israeli reform and orthodox Jews tend to live in very different communities and do not interact much, although conflicts do occasionally emerge. And while the chief rabbinate imposes its rules upon the entirety of the state of Israel, notably regarding many status issues and life cycle processes, there's only a minuscule reform movement in the state of Israel. If one reads the news of women of the wall, one might think that the reform and Orthodox Jews are clashing constantly. The reality is though, that many leaders of that effort to allow women access to prayer opportunities at the Western Wall are either affiliated with branches of Judaism other than reform or have no special affiliation. Indeed, many members and sympathizers of women of the wall often go out of the way to where to fill in, something many men involved in reform Judaism do not regularly do. In America, one significant difference between Judaism as practiced today in Orthodox communities on one hand and reform committees, on the other hand, has to do with Jewish identity. The accepted norm within orthodoxy is that one is only considered a Jew based on either matrilineal descent or a halachic conversion, while the reform movement accepts both patrilineal descent, as well as a less rigorous form of conversion, which does not require of the convert a commitment to halachic observance. Conversions through the reform movement have become a right for someone who wants it. You want to convert, it's your right. And the process will be clear and short in order for the convert to be welcomed. Converting for marriage is also acceptable to the reform. These divergences have made the potential for unified peoplehood very difficult. For some Jews, there is simply no way to redefine a Jewish status through patrilineal descent. Others do not see themselves as having the option of working with other groups that don't accept these new terms as a Jewish status is acceptable. Many in each group see the other's group approach as offensive. A related challenge also emerges with regard to weddings. Although this was not always the case today, intermarriage is largely not considered to be an impediment in the reform world. A related and ira- ironic debate has to do with whether a reform wedding is halakhically valid. Reform rabbis do not require a get at divorce. On, on the one hand, if a reform wedding is not valid and the couple civilly divorces without a halakhic get, if either member of the couple were to remarry, they could perhaps not have to face the prospect of having children f- from the u- new union to be considered mamzerim, illegitimate offspring. On the other hand, considering the original wedding to be invalid could be u- viewed as offensive to the reform rabbi who performed it. A somewhat related issue that seems to represent an orthodox reform divide has to do with same-sex marriage. Reform Judaism appears to accept that institution in ways that orthodoxy has rejected. Fast forward over a century, and it's not difficult to find warm engagement between reform rabbis and orthodox rabbis. In an unprecedented exchange in 1978 between the Lubavitcher Rebbe and Rabbi Joseph Glazer, who was the executive vice president of the CCAR, they shared their different views on the Constitution and the role of religion in the public square. Rabbi Glazer argued for a strict separation of religion and state. The Lubavitcher Rebbe argued that the religion, Torah, should be present everywhere possible. In regards to the Lubavitch practice to have a Hanukkah menorah lightings on on government property, Rabbi Glazer urged the Lubavitcher Rebbe to direct a cessation of these lightings or other religious observances on public property. He argued that there was a violation of the constitutional pr- principle of separation of church and state, as is the erection of Christmas trees and creches depicting the birth of Jesus. It weakens our hand when we protest the intrusion of Christian doctrine in the public life of American citizens. One step toward humility is for each member of a denomination to name the shortcomings of the denomination. As Rabbi Yitz Greenberg once famously remarked, it doesn't matter what denomination you are as long as you are ashamed of it. Are reformed Jews really doing enough to keep authentic Judaism intact and to slow down trends towards mass assimilation? Are Orthodox Jews really doing enough to proactively adapt and evolve and not distort timeless values by freezing the law with new layers of stringency? The problems are clear. The solutions are not. And so I conclude this presentation with the question, can we still be one people? <clears throat> the conception of Jews as a single unified people seems at least in hindsight to have emerged with fiery conviction and ubiquity with the diaspora that began 2000 years ago, and to have been rearticulated as a reality accepted by so many in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust. Jews were considered to be a singular nation in the diaspora. Think about a Federation campaign, one people, or a Zionist campaign, Jews united, right? It did not matter that we were separated by thousands of miles or oceans or languages or cultures. In the eyes of so many, we were one people. This was also what made the state of Israel and the land of Israel so important the promise of a country where Jews could gather and live and become a, a, a united people with the same language and culture and religious practices and identity. However, this idea of oneness seems to be just that, an idea, and more precisely, and as of yet, unrealized aspiration for unity in a time of constitutional turmoil. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in the preface to his book, One People, writes, Jewish unity, the phrase is deceptively simple. It is easier to invoke than to understand and is beset by irony. The idea that Jews are one people has emerged as perhaps the dominant motif of post-Holocaust Jewish reflection. It is a constant presence in the public rhetoric of contemporary Jewry. It evokes passion and conviction, but seldom clarity. Set against the reality it seeks to describe, it is an aspiration, not an achievement, a myth rather than a reality. Not since the first and second centuries have Jews been less united. Rarely has it been harder to state what constitutes them as one people. That in itself should not surprise us because demands for unity surface only at times of great internal conflict. Friends, to conclude, today we may be inclined to perceive ourselves as part of one people due to a shared language, a shared history, a shared tradition, a shared land, shared values, and other commonalities. But it is not our shared membership and a people that unites us. Rather, it is the very values we cherish that unite us with the goal of being an Am Kadosh, a holy people. We do not merely share some inexplicable tribal bonding affiliation, especially with the emergence of post-ethnic Judaism. When we prioritize our mere existence, our survival over our values, we depreciate that very existence, we make our survival less significant. I encourage our unity to be based on Jewish tradition, common values of justice, ethical responsibility, truth and peace, and not only on a singular conception of national peoplehood. The shifting nature of both Orthodox and Reform movements, uh, of course, and other denominations, over their relatively short history, stands witness to the fact that what endures as Jewish identity is a shared tie to an ancient wisdom, whose values and mores have evolved over the generations, whose Judaism is not some form of static nationalism. We must not only survive as a people, but also must and can thrive as a people. To do that, we must redirect our respective orientations beyond ourselves toward the other, Living with the other in the realm of common ideas and ideals, in order to find our collective way back into and realizing the dream of Jewish unity. So, friends, that was um, that was by far the longest presentation we've had. So, my apologies for that. <laughs> um, sometimes a debate is a singular debate, like Meir Kahana and Yitzh Greenberg or Hillel and Shammai. Um, here, we're dealing with a history of a few hundred years, and so uh, I, I intend to return back to. Uh, a shorter mo- uh, model of presentation and a larger dialogue, but I had to do justice to something so complex as the emergence of denominationalism and Judaism. So, friends, let's hear from a few of you um, with questions and comments before before I respond. So, feel free to unmute yourself and uh, and and jump in.
1: Rabbi, this is Eric, and I've got to just want to say thank you very much. This was to describe your your presentation, two words is wow and. Wow. <laughs> um, the question I have is regarding the concept of, uh, of survivability versus oneness. Uh, in the last recent years, we've seen that, yes, there's is, there is different debates between, you know, re- as you gave the example about Chabad won't be on the panel with re- re- reform. And you've seen that in the, the example of orthodox as original derogatory term towards orthodox, but you've seen the concept of survivability. Um, for example, when you've had shootings in temples, the Holocaust, uh, when the Jews have been externally attacked, it seems to be a sense of like we're more the the, uni- the, the oneness from an external perspective of like, let's band together because there's a survival concept uh, takes over rather than the, the, the internal the, the internal um, challenges that between Orthodox and reform. My, my question is, um, could is there been an aspect where both Orthodox and reform are, are, are moving forward that goes beyond this survivability um, against like external threats, or has that been just history shown that we've not been able to get beyond that. Beyond the survivability, there's too much differences in the, in the two where that concept of oneness is just an abstract idea.
0: Right, thanks. thanks, Eric. Great question Great and great great points. Okay, let's hear from someone else as well.
3: Uh, Rabbi, um, the, the one thing I'd have is, is this question of this focus on Jewish identity. Is that more of an American concept? Because in this country, it kind of parallels, is it not a movement about Christian identity? Are we a Christian nation? This has gone on for a hundred years. And, 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 is, is the question of a Jewish identity, or is that something that is more international and, and not, is a focus in, in Europe and other Parts of the Jewish world as well.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, thank you so much, Michael. Someone else?
3: Just a quick question. Um, you talked about the uh, for the Orthodox, a lot of the Orthodox strands that the Torah was binding and the Talmud and whatnot. Um, <laughs> what would what what would be the equivalent language that? a reform sect would use? Would they say, yeah, we're, we're bought in on the Torah as well, but, or would they say, you know, that was great centuries ago, but we would, like, what, how would they describe their embrace or uh, attachment or, or alignment with the Torah,
0: I guess? Great question, great question. Thank you, Scott. OK, let's hear from some more folks.
2: My grandparents were Russian immigrants. When they came here in 1900, they were practicing orthodoxy. Their children, however, revolted and became reform. I was brought up reform. And now my daughter is a lot more... Um, orthodox in observance than I ever was. So it seems to me that each generation kind of shifts, and in many cases, they oppose what their parents did.
0: Great, great points also. Amazing. I just want to hear from more people. This This is great. I'm taking notes on all of this. Thank you, Ali. Is there one more person who wants to jump in before I, I keep going?
3: Steve was trying to talk, but he was oh,
0: muted. Oh, please, Steve. Oh, you're on mute still? There, there I am. There, there I, I am.
2: Sorry. Uh, a few nights ago, I went to a Lagba Omer party, and I was greeted by the rabbi with the perfunctory hug. And he said the word my the words "my friend it is good to see you." He didn't say, "My fellow Jew, it is good to see you and I was thinking on the way home, I'd almost rather be called my friend than my fellow Jew. actually, I'm kind of like the Shahbascoi compared to this guy, so maybe he didn't think of me as a fellow Jew, but I love the phrase, "my friend." It is not that important for me to hear my fellow Jew. The okay, answer.
1: okay, Steve,
0: Steve, uh, can you add? Can you add to that last bit? So, so why being called friend is clear. Why being called fellow Jew would not be important? That you are you saying the peoplehood is not central to your identity?
2: The peoplehood. Uh, no, I think most of my identity is in, intuited. is is there from the beginning. is in everybody. I share an identity with everybody. Mm. Um, my friend to me means love and respect. Mm. Mm.
0: Okay, That's, very nice. Thank you, Steve. That's great. Okay, uh, who else do we not hear from yet?
2: Yes, Vicki. Okay, I'm just gonna add, I, I loved Eileen's story and I think it's the story many of us have in our families or, uh, and, and know people that are following that path. But I just wanted to say for me, the notion of unity really doesn't do it, but the notion of oneness and looking at manyness that there's many of us within there's many strands that that constitute that sense of being, of being Jewish. And also that I don't see things in terms of rejection I see more in terms of responsibility and my own personal responsibility to figure out where I am uh, on the spectrum and what speaks to me and to act on that.
0: Great, right. great. So, good. So, so, that's a great segue in because I think Vicki uh, moves us towards the next step, which is the point of this is not to condemn one denomination or another or reject one or another. But to get clarity on who we are and what form of Judaism we want to go deeper into, and to be self-aware of what we're choosing and why, and um, and to work to you know to strengthen um, that that, uh, that work based on our values intentionally, and to understand where the history came from and why to have that kind of self-awareness, and um, and to strengthen the manyness. We are unique at VBM in that we truly cherish. Uh, pluralism, the manyness that Vicki was talking about, in that um, but by and large, um, reformed Judaism and Orthodox Judaism reject pluralism, um, which is to say that reformed Judaism would reject orthodoxy as um, as 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 true. Um, and orthodoxy would reject reform as as true. Will there be some respect here and there? Yes. Um, but but they will by and large reject pluralism. And so actually, I think that while many throw around the term pluralistic, there'll have to be a lot of work done to actually create spaces that can embrace the manyness of Jews. And I don't believe there is a Jewish community, but Jewish communities, many Jewish communities uh, involved there. And so, um, uh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, Mike, why don't you jump in before I respond to some of yeah, well, One more quick
3: response okay. is, I think we should not forget what I consider the elephant in the room. The underlying issue of secular versus religious, because in, in, at least in the, in the Western world and in Israel, that, that, that's, a, that, that's kind of an underlying struggle that I think that, that impacts all of this.
0: Yeah, and I think that I appreciate that because that picks up on Eileen's previous point that the greatest trends, as we will see from these, from these studies, are that the next generation picks one of those two. They want to move towards orthodoxy, bale or they want to move towards a um, a cosmopolitan, multicultural form of secularism, uh, the the spiritual but not religious model, right? That views religious identity as a barrier towards some deeper humanity in some sense, um, and so the rejection of the parents' Judaism is 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 much more common than 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 we once saw. Now. Um, to go to uh Eric's point around the sustainability versus the oneness, I think you're exactly right that the that no, undoubtedly the greatest correlation between um anti-assimilation is not about some campaign that that Jewish institutions lead, but is is uh is anti-Semitism. The the higher the threat against Jews, the more Jews remain Jewishly identified. The less the anti-Semitism, the less they do so. Um, it's a sad reality that that's the case, and you're right that the the only time that Jews band together, by and large, is when it comes to such a threat. Um, so I do think that oneness, as you pointed to there, Eric, is is precisely that. It's an idea. It's an idea, perhaps an aspiration, um, but really the manyness and the differences are, are much more profound um, on 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 countless layers, and we're seeing that divide emerge more prominently. As we said, in post-Holocaust, in, in the 40, late 40s, 50s, 60s, even even really until uh, even into the 70s, we saw oneness as a huge value. And over those next decades, we saw greater greater divides politically, religiously, communally. And so to Scott's point there, um, I think reform rabbis have a hard job um, for, for, I mean, for lots of reasons, it's hard to be a rabbi. But I think Reformed rabbis have congregants that expect reformed rabbis to be traditionalists, kind of like a Dennis Prager model of Judaism that says, oh, of course, um, of course, the Ten Commandments are the word of God, right? Um, but of course, the Talmud is not binding. Uh, of course, I'm not halachically bound. And so there's a sense among many reformed congregants that expect a rabbi to kind of in some way keep kosher, in some way believe the Torah is true, Right. In some way, expect the rabbi in the community to like be in line with what Jewish tradition has typically said on issues. Um, And so they they get pushback from traditionalists within that camp who are not observants but want a certain type of synagogue to embrace tradition. And then they get the pushback from from uh, those who are, are, are embrace assimilation as a value within the reform camp of like, wait a minute, why are we still doing any kosher practices like no pork in our synagogue. It makes no sense, right? Or why would we have any barriers towards intermarriage or anything? Like, let's be reform and say, like, none of this law is binding. We don't have to do any of these traditions. Like, let's be social justice Jews right? And 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 take that primary. And so um they would describe, I think, most of them, of course, there's diversity among reform rabbis, but as Sinai inspired. In, we're Sinai inspired, we are inspired. By the tradition, but not bound by it, right? We we look to the tradition for guidance, but the fact that you can't find feminism in pre-modern Judaism, by and large, doesn't mean anything about as a barrier towards it, um, you know, or the, you know, uh, with, with or, or or many other similar examples. So, lastly, to, to Mike's point there about identity, I think you're right. I think if you want to win over the heart of a philanthropist who's over the age of 60 today. You said you used the two terms, continuity and identity. That's what we're doing. We're here cultivating young Jewish identity and and fostering, enabling Jewish continuity. Those are the the buzzwords that Hillel or Federation or other organizations, you know, know, legacy institutions would use to claim that they are maintaining this idea that there is continuity and that the investment is in this thing called identity. But you're exactly right. That's a very new idea continuity and identity. Identity as something that camp or day school should foster um, is a very new idea. Um, rather, what would usually be used is fluency and literacy. Does the kid know how to read Hebrew texts? Is the kid, you know, does the kid, does the kid have a fluency and a literacy and a competency? Does does the child, is the child behaviorally acting within Jewish norms? It is about action and it is intellectual right? This idea of identity you take for granted. Obviously pre-modernity you take identity for granted because the whole idea of modernity is the birth of the self, the conscious self that then comes to cultivate an identity. But also the notion of a religious identity um, is, is, is the much later idea. I can't speak to the idea of, of, of how identity is used differently in other countries. I just don't know enough to, to speak to that. And Steve's point is, is a fascinating one. To, to, to close there, this idea of a friend rather than a fellow Jew, because this is the new emerging trend here, a move from peoplehood into post peoplehood Judaism, post ethnic Judaism, this idea that what unites us um, is really our humanity. And yes, we may have shared values as Jews. We may have a shared um, community in some sense, but this is not genetic. This is not um, by law. This is not by blood. This is not um, by soul differentiation of soul. Um, as the Tanya will suggest, that Jews have a higher level of soul than Gentiles do, that, which is Chabad theology. One of, the, one of the few theologies in Judaism you can point to as truly racist, even though some people are inspired by it. The idea of Jews having a, a different soul than, than Gentiles the t- from the Tanya. Um, and, so, um, and so this, this idea of, of friendship, uh, of a space for our flavor of humanity rather than Jewish distinctiveness, has become increasingly attractive. So friends, I'm going to conclude here with my most profound respect for reform Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, Reconstructionist, renewal, conservative, post-denominational, assimilated Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, that the Judaism we want to promote is thoughtful Judaism, meaningful Judaism, Judaism where people are intentional in what they're choosing and why, and create a space to listen to each other around those differences and ideas, and that Jewish values, however we understand them, Can be used and understood in many, many different ways. I give us all the bracha, the blessing that we can both continue to grow in our own Jewish journeys, our own human journeys, our particular journeys, and we can build a Jewish community that can hold the plurality, not only in times of crisis, but in times of blessing. Have a wonderful day. Next week, what is, you want to know what's next week? So you'll decide. Number six, Einstein, Freud, and Marx versus the sages. Do Jews believe in free will? Oh, have
2: a great day. Can't wait. Are you as excited as me? Maybe not. Okay. (laughs) Have, Have a great day.